There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Lady AD Show, welcome to talking about books, anything about books, from reading them, from writing them, to publishing them, from the technical detail of how to get your book into print, to just talking about the process of being an author and anything to do with books that would please a bibliographile. my pleasure to have a conversation about books with two people who have been very, very important in my life. They are the Reverend Dr. Clifford Hill and his wife, Monica Hill. I met Clifford first in 2000 when I worked with him as CEO to the charity called Family Matters Institute. We had a run of five years before I had to move on, but those times were of a great memory for me. So it's even better that I can now actually talk to him about the nearest thing to my heart at the moment, which is books, writing and publishing. The Reverend Dr. Clifford Hill is a sociologist and a theologian. His pastoral ministry has been in inner city areas of London, including a long ministry in the East End, during which he held a senior lectureship in the Sociology of Religion in London University. He founded the Nuon Community Renewal Programme, one of the largest urban mission organisations in Britain. He also founded Prophetic World Ministries, which has had an extensive international ministry, especially through its flagship magazine, Prophecy Today. This continues today as an online weekly magazine, publishing a new issue every Friday as prophecytoday.uk. Clifford is the author of more than 40 books covering a range of subjects including race and community relations, social political studies, biblical commentaries and research studies on the family as well as many journal papers and articles, CDs and other resources. Together with his wife Monica they jointly lead Issachar Ministries which seeks to provide a biblical perspective on current issues providing resources for prayer and study groups in Britain. Today, I start in conversation with them in their offices in Sandy near Bedford. Just a point to say, there is some background noise. I hope that doesn't spoil you listening to the wonderful insights both Clifford and Monica give about writing books. Are you writing a book at the moment? Yeah, I've just um, sent a book off to publishers last week, actually. 100,000 words, quite a big one. It is called Church and State Since the 1960s, A Personal Reflection. It's really from my 
all my notes and diagrams which includes working with no less than four archbishops and some chapter on each because people don't quite realize how church and state inter interlocked and i've been um 25 years i did as um, convener of the lord and Commons. I helped quite a bit on Cliff's book, the Cliff Lindsay's writings, to get in the right format and to get the right understanding of making sure we've covered it, which has really covered quite a lot of our own involvement in that right over the years, which has been me as well. So <laughs> I've been checking for facts as well as for... It's also reminding us of a lot of the thing, other things we ought to be writing about and we ought to be making more, the more note of. So how many books have you authored yourself? I've... Authored three, I think, and then edited about five or six more, with, with which I've had a, a section in. The very first one was How to Plant Churches, um, and that was... Then I did Rich Christians, Poor Christians, which was one about our travels. Who were the rich Christians, who were the poor Christians in the world, and then when you could in a worldly nature as to what's happening, and the different understandings of what rich riches are. So when you're researching for your books, how do you go about the research? I think it's, it's, a, it's a dual thing. I suppose um, uh, many of them are from uh, what's been of great interest to us. You know, and, and, and there's obviously a reason why um, you feel that you need to write a book. You know, there's a, you know, kind of a an aim and an objective, and, um, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, don't just say, well, I'll write a book on something, but... Um. My next question to you both is, how do you craft your books? Because it's been quite a, a long journey from the first ones to... It oh, it has, still, yes, yes, still yes, now, yeah. yeah. So you think books still have a place in the video? I do, and, very much so, um, yes. But um, hasn't taken over? No, I, I think books... Um, there was a time when we thought everything was... Everybody tried to go paperless, and you can't. Misnomer, I think, about, you know, just saying... We're going to become the paperless generation. You know, people still like holding a book in their hands. They still, yeah. like, still like writing a book. And um, there's nothing like uh, the long, longevity of a book rather than just a website, you know, or something which is digital. Um, newsletters going out, if they only go out um, digitally, they get to the bottom of the pile and many of them are not even there. They're not, not looked at. No, no. So, um, you know, whereas if you've got a bit of paper, it's a constant reminder. There's something here, then you can go back and you can look at it again. Whereas often if it comes in as an email, it gets down to the bottom of the pile and you haven't filed it. And it's you seem to remember more what you read in a book than you do online as well, I think. Well, of course, there's an educational thing on that, you know, that you, um, you hear something and you forget about 80% of what you hear. You see it and you can uh, you only let them forget about 60%, but if you actually discuss it and do it, and you only forget about 40%. So there's, a, you know, so there's a, a whole advantage in actually in not just hearing and seeing, and doing is much more effective if you actually put it into practice. Yeah. It's much more effective in getting a message over. So how did Living in Babylon happen? Because this is the joint ah, author yes, between yes. yourself and Clifford. Well, that was in our Bible study. We, we were looking at um, the, the biblical records of um, the, the exile in Babylon. 
and realising, of course, that the exiles actually came back. They were away for 50 years, and though it was a, quite a whole turnover, but the, uh, instead of being lost, embraced in Babylon, they came back as a renewed people. They, have, they brought back something. They learned a lot in Babylon. They learned that they could do without a synagogue, they could do without, um, they could do without, do without the temple. They didn't have synagogues, and so they formed the synagogues. They formed a community aspect of it in here. So they formed a community was formed in Babylon, which was able to be perpetuated. A lot of things they learned about God, that God, when they were in Babylon, they, that God wanted them to, to change. They wouldn't just be brought back unless they did make some changes in themselves. It's God doing a new thing, isn't it? It's saying it doesn't have to be the old way. Yes, yes that's right. Yes. And, uh, and uh, so they became much more a spiritual awakening when they were in there. And so the spiritual side came back. What is it like, actually? How do you work it when you co-author a book? One starts it off and writes something, and the other amends it, and we work out just where it's going to go, what's going to end up as. Right. I mean, Cliff often starts the thing off, and I will pick it up, or and sometimes an idea will come out of something. Can you hear personal voices in the book, do you think? Sorry, what do you mean by that? Um, an author's voice sometimes, I know, particularly when I've read some of your things in the past, uh, Clifford, particularly Bible studies on Jeremiah and sure. and Isaiah and, mm-hmm. and those studies, I can almost hear you speaking mm-hmm. when yeah. I'm reading your words. So how does that work when you've done a joint book? You use naturally speaking to write, don't you? You you um, you write My style, text. Yes. your style is very much a speaking style. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mine is very much a writing style. Well, it depends what I'm writing. If if I'm writing a report for Parliament, that's a, a much more formal way. Or if I'm writing an academic book, um, uh, that's much more formal. But um, if I'm writing that, that I want people to read to make it readable, um, uh, I use a much more conversational style. Writing is really should be geared to who's going to read it. Exactly. Yeah. Rather than what you want to say. Precisely. And this is what, um, uh, they've got to decide who it's for first. Right, so yeah. that, will, that will distinguish the style in which they write it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So who do you write for? In the past, I've always written for church leaders and the people you know, from the, my time during the British Church Health Association. Very much so that it would be something that they would understand. Which is very different from writing for general public. General, very different from... Mm-hmm. Now I write very much more for prayer groups, uh, people who are willing to take time to study something. Is that why you've in the workbook? Or? I would think so, yes. yes, yes the, the workbook was very much more me than Cliff at the, to begin with, wasn't it? Tales in with Living in Live Babylon, Babylon. Yes. and it's called Living Victoriously in Babylon, in Babylon. And which is looking well, at how does it relate to today. The section on um, Babylon uh, is much more me, the section on um, the New Testament church is... Yes, and how it worked in the New Testament church more, and how it's working you. today. And the <coughs> section, the third section, which is on today, is a mixture really, isn't mm, it, of yes. you and me? Yeah. But, but in both cases it will be one or other starting it off and the other one helping yeah. develop it. Do you enjoy working together more than solo writing? No, I wouldn't say so. I think um, I just enjoy writing. So. You just enjoy writing. I think yeah. it's it's nice to be together so that you can actually be the first one to read the other one's thinking. And, um, yeah. and then uh, you, know, you can point out some... It can be quite exciting writing together. Yes, it can. We bring something to it and talking it through. How do you come up with the titles for your books? Prayer, inspiration. 
and uh, this latest one has changed and amended them. Yeah, because then, because then you know, if you're going to a publisher, they will suggest something, they will suggest other things going mm. in, so you have to pay attention. But then the workbook is one that um, we will expect to pick up ideas from other people as they study it, mm. so they will add some into it. So there's bound to be addendums. And also, because um, we've now got the clay tablets... So we can addend it much more on that. We can you know, do some research into those and find out just what the clay yes, tablets we are. We don't have the clay tablets. No, we've got they're a translation the, on. The clay tablets wouldn't be any use to us. In the Bible Lands Museum in Jerusalem. There's much more wide scope of research now, isn't there? So what would you say the biggest difference, particularly, Cliff, from when you wrote your first book, which was, what, 1970s? No. no, before that? Mm-hmm. 1960s. 1960s. No, before that. Before that? Okay. We won't go back further. But from your first book to... 1958 was my first book. It was called Black and White in Harmony, and it had a subtitle of Notes from a Minister's... No, from a minister's notebook or something, something like that. So it was very much your practical experience of what you yeah. learned. By working with the new migrants that had come in. Yeah. I've only ever pastored churches in London. Mm-hmm. I'm a Londoner. I'm not a provincial. <laughs> so writing then to still writing now, yeah. one that was published last year, one that's you know, in the process just been sent to the publisher, mm. what's the major difference? Oh, huge difference. Um... I squirm if I read my first book, which was very patronising. And uh, I think you're, you're, you, you have changed oh, your yes, thinking, yes, and I think we all yes. change all the time. So what was right at one time, what was right at yeah. the other time? The first generation of migrants had only just um, come into Britain. The very first Caribbean Africans to come to Britain was in 1948 on a ship called the Empire Windrush. I was a pioneer in London um, working among the, the first generation and most of them were illiterate or semi-illiterate and rural um, communities. I was highly active among them finding jobs and uh, accommodation, all those practical things for them. My um, church house was known locally as the Jamaican Labour Exchange. I really didn't know I was doing anything unusual until the press started to take an interest in my church, where many, many um, African-Caribbeans mixing happily with my white congregation, which was very unusual in those days. The tension was rising a lot. And when I published my first book in 1958, it actually coincided with the um, Notting Hill riots some of that year. In fact, my friends really uh, teased me that uh, I'd arranged it all as a discount for the book. It was obviously very good um, publicity for the book. Um, I had actually forecast the, the riots in, in the book, and um, I could foresee it coming. But that was the first. My second was uh, published by Oxford University Press, academic study, a bit of um, research that I did on West Indians and the London churches, and that was the title. Mm. I went out to um, the Caribbean, um, Barbados, Trinidad and Jamaica on behalf of the um, British Council churches, visiting church leaders and speaking all over the islands. I established links between the um, churches that were sending people, the, the Church of Fom which uh, migrants were leaving and um, the churches in London that were um, receiving them or not receiving them, um, but should be. So I assume that that book would have been handwritten then. 
No, you used to dictate. You had a secretary. Yeah, I had a secretary. Ah. I, a lot of it was handwritten, you know, but I had a secretary to type it all up for me. I think, I think the thing which has come out of that is that when you publish one thing, questions come up and people, and then it opens up all sorts of doors mm. and you find yourself doing another one. Uh, because of your experience, Black and White and Harmony... Mm. That's when the BBC so started chasing The BBC chasing started me, chasing and, and, and there used to be all sorts of... I did a weekly broadcast on BBC Caribbean service from BBC in London with the Bush House in London every week I did a sort of letter from London I think it was called um, Broadcast to the Caribbean and on um, daily life among the migrants in uh, London I think the book itself highlighted the fact that you were doing something which many of the others, uh, other churches, were not. Other churches would send black people along to our church so that um, they weren't very mixed congregations at all. You know, it was very much sort of separate one. So it highlighted the whole need for a research thing on the West Indian migrants and the London churches. The next one was How Colour Prejudice is Britain. It opened you a research paper, you know, a whole lot of research elements as well as positive things is how you can do something about it. With the movement of change from having to submit a book to a publisher and having it accepted to very much the self-publishing, indie publishing that is of today, and the ease in which people can write books... In, in a relative short space of time. There's been going around saying to write a book is like the new business card. And yet, I don't think that's quite true because to me, a book, if it's a worthwhile book, changes lives. And your books have changed lives. How would you sum that up on, on the difference your books have made? I would think the books that we've written have been not just because we've wanted to write them, but because it has been seen as a need. They've been seen to fulfil a need of other people. It's something they didn't know or something that they need to know. And because we've had a, a wide audience, um, people have been able to say, yes, that's fine, what do we do about it? How much of an influence is the Holy Spirit in your writing? Oh, incredibly so, I think. <laughs> I think in, in, even in even ensuring that um, we bring it back to basics, I think, really, isn't it? Yes, I don't think I would write um, unless I felt that uh, the Lord was um, yeah. was in it. I, I don't undertake anything unless... Um, in, in, in fact, you, you often cannot write uh, no times. No, no, oh, no. gosh, no, there are plenty of days I can't write at all. No. Yeah. Is that writer's block, or how would you... I just call it writer's block, and uh, I just I'm just not creative until the, the spirit is on me, which is sometimes difficult because um, highly I have to get a, an editorial for Posse today, and uh, puts me under a lot of pressure um, because. Uh, if uh, I'm not inspired at all, I can spend all day only writing a couple of sentences. When I write my editors, um, usually I will write it in an hour, a thousand words in an hour. That's uh, my normal. I have to wait till the spirit is on me, yeah, and then it comes. Last Thursday was an example, wasn't it? We were really under a lot of pressure. We've got a staff meeting here that I had to be at. So I got up early and I went to the study and an hour later I got the whole... But you, but you have to have um, a kind of a vision as to what it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, what you're wanting to communicate. Mm-hmm. I just thank you both very much. It's been wonderful talking to you. I could talk with you a lot, lot longer about your wealth of writing, yeah. being authors and books. But just to finish with, what would be your three top tips to a would-be author today? 
I would think, um, is there a new, re- unique contribution you've got to make or has somebody else already written about it? Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. You've got to be absolutely sure that you really are um, empowered, as it were, to, to write. If it's a Christian book, this really is something that is pleasing to the Lord and is needed by God's people. And uh, factually, you've got to make sure that you've done your research. Doing the research for a book should be at least twice as long as actually writing it. Research should be twice as long as actually writing it. Of course. Right. Yeah, yeah. Stuff for Babylon, living in Babylon, uh, the, you know, the research actually took me. I did the research really, more than Monica on that one. Um, it took about three years to research the 6th century BC, all the archives and archaeological evidence and biblical evidence and etymological evidence, the linguistic stuff, the Arcadian language, all the background to gods of Babylon as a very complex. All that had to be done before we even started writing. But it also, that, that, doing the research, highlighted that a dearth of... Oh, there was a dearth. The dearth of literature on the yeah. subject. And there was not, um, even even in the biblical references. Yeah, hardly not, anybody. Hardly anything written. lived in the, yeah. uh, hardly anything reported from mm. well, those last yeah. 500 years before Christ was born. Mm. Hardly anything recorded well, in the Bible. Very, very references. few, there were very few books written on that period. You, you know, you search the net, you search for ages to find anything that's been written um, mm. on that period. 6th century BC, they, um, I suppose it was the last four or five hundred years, isn't it, which is, which is almost seen as a, a time when a lot of changes were made in society, but there was no record of them. So the Jewish society at the time of Christ, when Christ was born, which is when you know, we begin to get more records of in the, the biblical record, was very different from the time when um, they came back. Biblical scholars speak about the period of 6th century in Judah as being um, the empty land. There's a, 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 there are books written on the myth of the empty land. What took place in Judah after uh, Nebuchadnezzar took most of the population to Babylon, 597 BC? There's, there's virtually no record of that. But, uh, and you see um, Sennacherib, the uh, Assyrian um, emperor, deliberately um, uh, carried out what we would today call ethnic cleansing. Um, he took whole towns uh, across to Assyria, which in today's uh, geography would be northern Iraq. Mosul in northern Iraq was Nineveh uh, in biblical um, terms. And he resettled whole townships uh, from uh, all over Israel uh, around that area of northern Iraq. He picked up other towns that he had conquered outside Assyria um, in what we would now call um, Syria and Lebanon. Picked up whole um, towns from there and forcibly resettled them in Israel. And of course they intermarried with the local, the local people who were left, the Jewish people who were left. And they became the Samaritans. And this is why they were um, intermarried and um, interbred. This is why they were so uh, despised by the people of of Judah and uh, Jerusalem. Do you ever get caught up in research and how do you decide how much of the research you put in the book and how much you just retain for your own records? Oh, it's all in my head. 
Uh, we have to make the distinction as what is actually relevant, where it's, where it's going. Because I got fascinated by um, the different troll methods that conquerors exercised to control their nations. So Egypt made them slaves. Assyria swapped them around. Babylon didn't allow them to work. The one thing they weren't allowed to do was go home. When uh, Babylon fell to the Persians, Cyrus was very released the people and said, you go back and rebuild Jerusalem and you rebuild the temple and I'll even give you resources from Persian treasury to uh, help build the temple on condition that you pray for me every day in the temple in Jerusalem. This made the people feel very favorable towards him. But actually he was a manipulator, bigger dictator than all the others, but they felt goodwill towards him because he had shown them goodwill to them. So they didn't revolt. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had, Sennacherib, the others, had forcibly suppressed the people, whereas he got their goodwill and therefore got them serving his empire without uh, the use of force. So the three tips for authors we've got um, <laughs> Don't to, reminiscing like <laughs> <laughs> to be unique, to have a separate voice, to do your research. Yeah. Yeah. And the third one would be? Well, to think of the people you want to reach and um, to make sure that they will understand what you're presenting, that your presentation links in with the people who you want to be your readers. Thank you so much for your time. I hope you enjoyed this podcast all about books. Such a passion for me. So much so, if you have got a book in you, a dream to write a book, I can help you. I can coach you through it. I can mentor you and I can lay out your book so it's so beautiful that when you print it out, you just can't wait to show it to your friends and sell it on to wonderful customers. Ladyad.com. Contact me. Email me. Lady at ladyad.com. And let's see if we've got a match to make a book your dream book come true. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers with juvederm volbella xc and juvederm ultra xc your lip look whether it's subtle or bold can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at juvederm.com today that's j-u-v-e-d-e-r-m.com Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if your
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.